what would give you peace? What would it take for you to be not only outwardly prosperous, but inwardly content and secure? You might hope to experience peace if the dating relationship you're in leads to marriage. Or if the letter in the mail says, we are pleased to offer you admission. Or if the job interview you just had leads to a promotion. Or if that long simmering conflict in the family is resolved. Or if your next scan comes back clear. Now, any of these blessings may bring a measure of happiness. You would have good reason, uh, in one sense, to feel better about how things are going in your life if any of these happened than if their opposite took place. But can any of them give you peace? Fill in the blank for whatever earthly good you most long for, whatever plan you most want to succeed. Now imagine you get it. It doesn't take knowing too many people who have got that, whatever that is, to know that it won't finally satisfy you. Whatever you're chasing, is it possible you could grab hold of it? But then it turns out you're still lonely, still frustrated, still fearful. One of the sad ironies of being fallen human beings is that we constantly mistake our greatest needs. We constantly think, if only I had that, I'd be set. A more fulfilling job, more zeros in the bank account, a family of your own. What are your greatest needs? They might not be what you think. This morning, we continue our series in chapters 14 to 17 of John's Gospel with chapter 14, verses 25 to 31. The passage is on page 901 of the Pew Bibles. These chapters are often called Jesus' Farewell Discourse, since he is speaking to his disciples privately on the eve of his execution. The whole conversation Jesus has with his disciples has the flavor and function of a last will and testament. These chapters are stuffed with comfort because they itemize the staggering bequests that Jesus will leave his disciples. Please follow along as I read John 14, verses 25 to 31. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced 
because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. That last phrase is a little confusing. Jesus says, let's go, but then the conversation continues for a couple more chapters. I think there's a couple possible explanations of what's going on here. One is that Jesus invites his disciples to leave, but then he deliberately delays to add more weight and solemnity to these last words. But maybe even a more plausible explanation is that actually they do leave, the text just doesn't tell us, and then the rest of the conversation continues as Jesus and his disciples are walking through Jerusalem on the way to the place where he will be betrayed. Either way, the main point of our passage is the comfort Jesus gives his disciples before he leaves. He comforts them by explaining how his going out of the world and back to the Father is actually going to be better for him and for them. Specifically, he draws his disciples' attention to needs that only he can meet. And he can only meet these needs by going to the cross, rising from the dead, and then returning to the Father. So my question for you this morning, whether you believe in Jesus or not, is this. What do you need that only Jesus can give? What do you need that only Jesus can give? Our text gives us three answers. First, a teacher within. A teacher within. Jesus promises this in verses 25 and 26. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Here Jesus provides a solution for two problems that his disciples face. The first is, how will they continue learning from their beloved teacher if their beloved teacher is about to leave? And his answer is that he will send the Holy Spirit. When Jesus returns to the Father, he will ask the Father for the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will come in Jesus' name. Just as the Father sent the Son to act in the Father's name, so the Son obtains the Spirit to come and to act in His name, the Son's name. The Spirit speaks on Jesus' behalf. Look at the specific terms in verse 26. He will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. All things here means everything you know in order to trust me and obey me and bear witness to me. It's really equivalent to the next phrase, that the Spirit will bring to mind all that I have said to you. Not one word of Jesus' teaching will be lost. This brings us to the second problem that Jesus' promise addresses, which is that so far the disciples have a pretty poor track record of understanding what Jesus is talking about. 
This really happens throughout John's gospel, and we've already seen it in our past couple of sermons in this chapter. Twice in the gospel of John, in chapter 2, verse 22, and chapter 12, verse 16, we see that the disciples didn't understand what Jesus was saying at the time, but then after he rose from the dead, they understood. Now, in one sense, the resurrection is itself a revelation. But another part of why the disciples understand later what they didn't understand at first is that after Jesus rose from the dead, he sent the Holy Spirit to illumine their hearts. How does the Spirit do this? Look back at verse 17, which we considered a couple weeks ago. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says there, You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit teaches from within. Those who believe in Jesus have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. The Spirit doesn't merely impart information from without. The Spirit illumines from within. The Spirit renews our minds so that we can understand the things that He's revealed in His Word. The Spirit renovates our hearts so that we can freely embrace the mysteries of the gospel as the very words of eternal life. This promise of the Holy Spirit both empowers and authenticates Jesus' first disciples as his authoritative witnesses. When the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, as Acts chapter 2 tells us, the apostles began to boldly proclaim the good news of what Jesus had accomplished. And the apostles' witness, their testimony, took the form not only of public preaching, but also eventually of works that they wrote down, books and letters. These books, these letters, proclaim Jesus' teaching and saving work, and they apply that work to the lives of Christians and churches. In other words, this promise right here, is one of the foundations of the inspiration and the authority of the New Testament. Why should we trust these new books that followers of Jesus wrote in the 60 or so years following his resurrection? Why should these books have the same status as the books of the Old Testament? It's because Jesus promised the Holy Spirit who would guarantee the apostles' memory, right understanding, and faithful proclamation of what Jesus taught and did. Since this is such an important issue, we're going to pause here for just a moment and add a bit more evidence for the inspiration and trustworthiness of the New Testament. A little teaching sidebar. Turn over to John 16, verses 12 to 14. Here's another promise of what the Holy Spirit will do. Same theme, a little more detail. John 16, 12 to 14, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus has more to say to the disciples, and he will say it through the Spirit. 
So what they eventually wrote down in the Gospels and Acts and in their letters was not merely their own opinion or recollection. Jesus did not leave the transmission of his teaching up to the vagaries of history. He didn't roll the dice and just hope his disciples remembered the right stuff. No, he left his teaching in the hands of the Holy Spirit who would ensure that, the, that his message was remembered, recorded, and reported to people throughout the world and throughout history. So, here's another layer of evidence for the inspiration and authority of the New Testament. It's not surprising that we see evidence within the New Testament of New Testament books being treated as Scripture. Couple instances of this. In 1 Timothy 5.18, you don't need to turn there, you can just write this down. 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul is proving the point that churches need to pay their pastors. He introduces two citations to support this by saying, For the Scripture says. The first citation is from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. And the second citation is a saying of Jesus. And the wording is identical to Luke chapter 10, verse 7. So Paul cites Luke's gospel, and he calls it Scripture. And then Peter, in his second letter, chapter 3, verses 15 and 16 says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Here, Peter refers to a collection of Paul's letters, a collection that was already in circulation such that Peter could assume that his Christian readers were familiar with these letters. And Peter presents these letters as Scripture. They distort these as they do the other Scriptures. And there's no indication that this was any kind of innovation or surprising claim or that anybody would have had any problem with that. Jesus promised the Spirit. Paul recognized Luke's gospel as Scripture. Peter recognized Paul's letters as Scripture. And if you're concerned about a book like Revelation, where'd that come from? How, how can we trust a book like that with its strange visions of the future? Well, Revelation claims to be the testimony of the risen Lord Jesus, and it was given to John while John was in the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own authority. He will declare to you the things that are to come. Revelation fits perfectly with what Jesus promised to do. Even the book of Revelation is a fulfillment of this very promise. There's so much more we could say about this, and I'd be happy to talk further at the door afterward, but we should return to the main point of the passage. The Holy Spirit is a teacher within, and while there were unique effects of the Holy Spirit's ministry to the apostles, the Holy Spirit continues that ministry of teaching within in every believer today. Do you want to experience more of the Holy Spirit's work in your life? Then devote yourself to studying the words that he has inspired that bear witness to Jesus. You don't experience the Spirit by seeking some kind of revelation apart from in addition to 
what He has inspired for us. You won't experience the Spirit by looking for some new revelation apart from Christ, but by asking the Spirit to illumine the testimony He has already borne to Christ. The more filled with the Spirit you are, the more you'll be satisfied with what the Spirit has said authoritatively for all believers for all time in His Word. So pray for the Spirit's illumination. Pray that the Spirit would lead you into into the truth. When you come upon a passage of Scripture you don't understand, pray for the Spirit to help. If you come upon a teaching in God's Word where you experience internal resistance, where you think, wait a minute, this can't be right. Well, it it might be you have a wrong understanding of the passage, in which case, pray for the Spirit's help. It might be you understand it rightly, but you don't like it. Pray for the Spirit to subdue your opposition. Pray for the Spirit to renew you inwardly. You might encounter a teaching in Scripture where you know what it means and you think you agree with it, but you're just not sure how it plays out in your life. Pray for wisdom. Pray to be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit is a teacher within. He continues to illumine us. I'm pretty confident that every single one of you has, at some point in your life, taught someone something. Many of us have taught more extensively, whether teaching children in the home or in Sunday school, whether teaching in a school or college, whether teaching people sports or skills on the job. And whatever teaching experience you have, you know that the hurdle you have to get over is never merely intellectual. It's never merely a matter of information. It's about the heart. It's about the will. It's about desire. When I was a grad student, I taught some undergrad courses in Greek, and those undergrad students had to take uh, one language out of a set of languages in order to pass their degree. And so, as you can imagine, some of the students got near 100% on everything. Every exam, the final, some of the students barely squeaked by, bare minimum to pass. Now, the difference was not intellectual ability. They're all bright and gifted students. The difference was who cared? (laughs) Some of the students cared about the language. Others, not so much. If you're not a believer in Jesus, I want you to know that you don't just need new information or more information. You need a new heart. And that's what Jesus promises through the Holy Spirit. You don't fundamentally need more data from without. You need to be enlightened from within. That promise of a teacher within is what Jesus holds out to you today if you will trust in him. Second point, peace that won't fail. What do you need that only Jesus can give? Peace that won't fail. Jesus offers us this peace in verses 27 to 29. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. 
If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. The weight of these verses falls on verse 27. So we're just going to work our way backward from verse 29 to 28 to 27, so we kind of land there. In verse 29, Jesus is behaving as a faithful biblical prophet. He is telling them truly ahead of time what's going to happen so that when it does happen, just like he said, his teaching would be authenticated, validated, and their faith in him would be strengthened. It would be confirmed. He's not saying they have no faith. He's just saying when it takes place, just as I said, your faith will be deepened because you'll see a demonstration of it. Now, Christians today can experience something analogous to this. We stand on the far side of the completion of God's authoritative revelation in his word. But sometimes we can see in our lives such a clear fulfillment of one of God's promises that we know his word is coming true in us. There's a kind of proof by experience. There's a demonstration. There's a confirmation. We see Romans 8, 28 coming true that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him. And when you have that confirmation of God's word in your life, hold on to it, remember it, because you can lean on that when your life offers you less confirming evidence of the truth of God's promises. In verse 28, Jesus refers back to his teaching earlier in this chapter He is going away, and he will come back to his disciples by resurrection, then by sending the Spirit, finally by his bodily return. But what the disciples mainly hear is, I am going away. They're understandably sad. They're shaken. They're grieved because, as they see it, they will soon be bereft of Jesus. And what Jesus says in response to this sadness is surprising on many levels. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Does this mean that the Son is intrinsically inferior to the Father? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that the the Son is eternally subordinate to, eternally submissive to the Father? No, it doesn't mean that either. Jesus is speaking as a human being, face to face with them in the flesh. And he's speaking with reference to his human nature and the state he's currently in. Why is it better for Jesus that he returned to the Father? Because when he does, he will regain as man the glory that he has always possessed as God. This will be the answer to Jesus' own prayer for himself in John 17, 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Love wants what is best for the one loved. What is best for Jesus is to leave behind the humiliation and suffering he has endured for our sake and to obtain the glory that is due to him both as God's eternal son and as the now triumphant savior, the incarnate Lord, who for us paid the debt of death for sin, who for us triumphed over the grave by resurrection. 
by returning to the Father in heaven, Jesus enters into absolute sovereignty, unbounded dominion, and inconceivable glory. Augustine put this point beautifully in his comments on this phrase. Congratulations should be extended to human nature precisely because it has been so taken up by the only begotten word that it was established immortal in heaven. And earth was made so sublime that dust incorruptible sat at the right hand of the Father. What do we as a church rejoice in? Conversions, baptisms, lives being transformed, faithful endurance and glorifying Christ amid suffering, missionaries being sent out, new churches being started. Praise God for all these things. These are all great things to rejoice in. But do you also rejoice that Jesus is seated at God's right hand in heaven? You should rejoice in that because it is best for Jesus to be there now. And you should rejoice that Jesus has returned to the Father because it is by returning to the Father and entering into his glory that he has now begun to act in all of these marvelous displays of his grace and power. His return to the Father is the reason we can rejoice in all these other things. Now for verse 27, which is really the heart of this whole passage. And it's really the heart of the chapter. You see that he repeats the same exhortation, word for word, from uh, almost word for word, from verse 1. Verse 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Not to let them be afraid. How does Jesus leave peace with his disciples? What are the necessary conditions? Of this bequest. He can give us a peace that won't fail because it is first his own possession and it is also a benefit he obtains for us by dying for us, rising for us, and returning to the Father. The Bible's concept of peace is not the mere absence of hostility but full orbed flourishing. This peace was originally humanity's possession, but our first parents squandered that peace by sinning. And ever since, each of us have taken up arms against God and against others through our sin. Sin sets us against God, estranges us from others, and even alienates us from ourselves. And it is impossible to experience true peace until you're reconciled to God. The punishment for our sins is the opposite of peace. It is an eternity of suffering, God's righteous wrath in hell. But God sent his eternal son into the world as the man Jesus Christ precisely in order to make peace. What did we just sing a moment ago? All for my sake, my peace to make. 
Christ made peace for us by perfectly fulfilling God's will throughout his life and then by offering up his life in place of ours on the cross. Jesus made peace for us by freely enduring all the consequences of how we have been alienated from God and hostile to God. He died in our place, rose from the grave, ascended to the Father, and then obtained the Spirit to pour out for us all to reconcile us to God. If you're not a believer in Jesus, there is a way for you to be perfectly and permanently at peace, at peace with God, at peace with yourself. That way is by believing in Jesus, by turning from being your own master and submitting to him as Lord, by relying on him, trusting in him, believing in him. Only he can give you a peace that won't fail. And the way you can receive that is simply by believing in him. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. This peace is not simply feeling good. This peace is the personal consequence of the objective peace that Christ has made for us with God. As Spurgeon put it, peace with God is the treaty. Peace in the conscience is the publication of it. Peace with God is the fountain. And peace with conscience is the crystal stream which issues from it. This peace belonged first to Jesus. You can only give what you have. Jesus is claiming to possess peace. Not only a peace, but a peace he can freely give. A peace he can live that, leave behind that will be fully sufficient for all his disciples. He's speaking this on the eve of his betrayal and trial and crucifixion. He is staring down a gruesome death. And he says, my peace, I leave with you. Jesus's peace, his calm confidence in God's purposes can endure any affliction. Not as the world gives do I give to you. In many languages around the world, Greetings are a kind of relic of some type of benediction, some wish for peace. So in English, we say goodbye, which is a contraction of God be with you. French adieu, I commend you to God. Jesus is saying the world can wish you peace. Only I can guarantee it. What in this world promises peace? Any source of peace in this world is unstable, transient, temporary, able to fail in an instant. Pleasure can turn into disgust or pain. Health can turn into illness. Wealth can vanish. Possessions can be lost, ruined, stolen, destroyed. People who seem to be your allies can make themselves your enemies. Coalitions can dissolve. Treaties can be violated. Deals can be broken. Where in this world do you look? for ultimate peace? Do you look to friends, to romance or marriage, having children, your appearance and the effect it can have on others, your health or fitness, your comfort or ease, your hobbies, your work? Work's a big one. 
Do you look to your job to provide validation, confirmation of your worth, pleasure through productivity, status, security? Many of these things can be blessings of work in their own proper place and order. But if you look to any of them to ultimately secure your well-being, you are setting yourself up for disaster. Do you look for peace from your plans for the future? From owning a home and paying off a mortgage? Maybe you see through the folly of looking to any of these things for your ultimate well-being and security. And so you pursue a more eastern course of detachment, mindfulness, negation of desire. Michael Reeb, one of the members of our church, tried out all the religions he could find before finally becoming a Christian. And he shared with me recently about his experience with Buddhism. He said, I was trying my best to find peace. Buddhism trains you to create a desire to desire nothing. And he said, that falls in on itself. Every time, Michael says, I went to create a pressure in myself to desire nothing, I was trying to fight fire with fire. We're inherently desiring beings. Desire isn't meant ultimately to be denied or negated, but to be transformed and then fulfilled. Nothing in this world can guarantee peace. Nothing in this world can secure your ultimate satisfaction and security. So many of this world's promises of peace ultimately result in an uneasy truce. That friendship may now have a smooth surface, but underneath are currents of resentment and envy. That conflict may seem resolved, but really it's like a spat among siblings where the younger brother has put down his fist, but the look on his face tells you it will take only the smallest provocation to prompt retribution. You might feel enormous satisfaction after a major achievement. That satisfaction might last months or weeks or days or minutes. Shortly after that milestone, you might start to feel just as hungry as you were before, just like every morning after enough time passes after breakfast. If you're constantly chasing one personal mountaintop after another, will you ever discover that they're all false summits? There's always another peak behind. Only Jesus gives lasting peace. Only Jesus grants unassailable flourishing. And the most remarkable thing about the peace Jesus gives is that it doesn't depend on your circumstances. Instead, this peace transcends and transforms your circumstances. The peace Jesus gives doesn't rise and fall with your outward fortunes. Instead, no matter how severe the storm is in your life, Jesus' peace is an eye in the middle of it. You need a peace that can survive and even thrive in the worst the world can throw at you. You need a peace that holds up better the more weight you put on it. A key part of growing stronger in faith in Christ is learning to receive all of God's earthly temporal gifts with an open hand and learning at the same time to cling to Christ more and more tightly. All earthly gifts 
are God's to give and take away as he sees fit. But Christ gives us peace that nothing can take away. Train your heart to find peace, not in circumstances, but in Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is a key part of how we need to counsel and comfort one another. When we lived in England, our kids made up a great game called Ice Sticks. It is a wintertime variation of Pooh Sticks from the Winnie the Pooh books. You find a partially frozen pond. You all chuck a stick out onto the ice as far as you can. And whoever's stick gets farthest out without falling in wins. It's a great game. Try it sometime. The game only works because the ice is thin. Brothers and sisters, when you comfort or counsel a fellow believer, do not offer them thin ice to stand on. Do not offer them a promise about circumstances. God would never do that to you. It'll be fine, just give it time. I'm sure that would never happen. Any promise of comfort based on circumstances is thin ice. And if you direct someone to put their full weight on a promise like that, you are setting them up for an icy plunge. Instead, you want to set them on the permafrost of Christ's peace. You want to stand them entirely on the unassailable foundation of God's promises. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. Do I give to you? This is why Jesus goes on in verse 27 to urge us, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus wants you to be calm even in calamity. He wants you to be serene even amid suffering. He wants you to be steady and sure and secure in his love when nothing in your life gives you a place to stand. And it is precisely when nothing in your life gives you a place to stand that your faith is both proved and improved. Jesus is urging you to take your heart in hand and mold it into shape. In suffering, you are not and should not be purely passive. Troubles of heart are things to be addressed, questioned, and corrected. How can you triumph over a troubled heart? Take a look at the housing project out back on 6th Street. Isaac already stole my illustration, but I got to use it anyway. In the recent weeks, the contractors painstakingly set up frames for the foundation, and then they poured in concrete. You want to frame your soul into the shape of Christ's promises. You want to meld and mend and bend and set up your heart in that shape. And then in prayer, pour in the concrete of Christ's promises as you pour out your soul to God. Christ promises peace that no trouble can take away. To all who believe in him, Jesus promises peace that won't fail. Third point, love that saves. What do you need that only Jesus can give? 
love that saves. Jesus offers us this in verses 30 and 31. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus is saying that his departure is imminent. And on one level, that is because Satan's plan is about to take effect. In John 13, 27, we learn that after Judas took a morsel of bread at the Last Supper, Satan entered into him. Jesus told him, what you're going to do, do quickly. Jesus knew that he would be betrayed, and he knew that Satan was the spiritual force inciting Judas's act of treachery. But notice... Even when Jesus talks here about Satan's plan and Satan's action, he is not caught off guard. He isn't surprised. Jesus was no failed revolutionary. Jesus didn't get caught in the gruesome gears of history. No, he pursued his fate willingly. He knew Satan's plan. He saw it all laid out before him. And he didn't seek his own life but ours. Jesus is the meek and ready Passover lamb. What does it mean that Satan is the ruler of this world? It doesn't mean that he's in charge and God is not. It means that God and his mysterious and wise sovereignty has permitted Satan to exercise spiritual sway over this world. It means that this whole fallen world stands under his influence, in one sense even under his dominion in the present age. Which therefore means that this world is not neutral. This world is not our home. This world is not a reliable guide to what is true and good. This world is the site of a spiritual battle. So do not set your ultimate affections on this enemy-occupied war zone. Instead, Long and pray for God's kingdom to come. God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus also says in verse 30, he has no claim on me. This is a legal expression. It means that Satan has no grounds for accusation. No legitimate claim of guilt. Nothing of which he can convict Jesus. And Jesus' trial bore this out. His accusers even sought out false witnesses whose testimony contradicted one another. No charge stuck. He had done nothing wrong, nothing deserving of death. He was going to pay the debt of a death he didn't owe to release us from the debt we owed. Now, if Satan has no claim on Jesus, why does he allow himself to be crucified? He tells us in verse 31. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. The Father commanded the Son to give His life to redeem us. And the Son obeys willingly, freely, with a whole heart. Why? Because He loves the Father. On the cross, Jesus practiced what He preached. 
John 15, 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus' act of giving his life for us on the cross doesn't just proclaim God's love for us, it proclaims the Son's love for the Father. The ground and goal of our salvation is not merely that God loves us and wants us to know his love. It's the eternal loving fellowship of the Trinity that we enter by faith as adopted children. The son's love for the father is one of the invisible spiritual bonds that kept him fastened to the cross. He could have called in angels to his aid. He could have got down off the cross. He stayed there to the end out of love for the father. And he did this so that the world would know that love. This is the same world that opposes him and resists his spirit. This is the same world that is going to uh, persecute and oppress his disciples. Jesus' death on the cross opens up his heart so that all with eyes to see can behold the eternal beauty of his love for the Father. If you're a Christian, what can the world learn about your love for the Father by how you act? If you're a parent, what can your children learn about your love for the Father by how you care for them? If you're an employer or supervisor in the workplace, what can your employees learn about your love for the Father by how you invest in them? If you're a student, what can your classmates learn about your love for the Father by how you serve them? If you love the Father, your obedience to the Father will show that love. Obedience reveals love and love prompts obedience. We've seen this before in John 14. We'll see it again next week. Obedience is the test and proof of love. And love is the spring and fuel of obedience. What do you need that only Jesus can give? Love that saves. One of the most frustrating and unnerving experiences of love is when you desire to help or protect someone you love, but you can't. Those of us who are parents, when our kids get sick, we give them Tylenol and ice chips and tuck them into bed and we pray. If they get worse, if the fever spikes, we bring them to urgent care. If I could get rid of the fever, I would! But I can't tell the white blood cells what to do. When those we love are suffering or in trouble, we quickly and painfully discover the limits of our power. But there is no limit to the power of Christ's love. There is no lack in it. Nothing can stop it. Christ's love saves. Christ's love is perfectly productive, completely effectual. When Judas betrayed Jesus and Jesus was led away bound, Satan thought he had the upper hand. But Jesus was actually fulfilling the Father's will. Satan thought he had Jesus trapped, backed into a corner. But Jesus took every step freely. Satan thought he had defeated Jesus. But Jesus' death was his victory. 
If you are not a follower of Jesus, you need someone to love you whose love will not be deterred by anything wrong that you do and whose love has no limit or lack, whose love can never be stopped. And among human beings, only the eternal son of the eternal father loves like that. You need a love that saves. Only Jesus has it and he offers it freely to all who believe. Christ gives peace that the world can neither give nor take away. Christ is the only way to this peace because he himself is our peace. By loving us and loving the Father all the way to the cross, Christ has made a perfect and permanent peace. And by sending us his spirit, he causes his own peace to dwell in our hearts. Without believing in Christ, you have no hope of this peace. But if he gives you peace, no one can take it away. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise of peace. We pray that you would cause this peace to quiet our hearts. We pray that you would cause us to be calm and still and secure in you, no matter what storms rage around us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.